Welcome to Terms of Service, a podcast hosted by Parallel. My name is Alex Chetvertinsky. And I'm Nicholas Wiering. This is a podcast about Web3 technologies decoded specifically for the art and culture industries, trying to cut through the hype of crypto marketing and explaining the real concepts behind the buzzwords. Welcome to the first episode of Terms of Service. So we're very honored in this first episode to host Sean Muspaltz, who's the CEO of Bitmark. So Bitmark is known for being a protocol, um, which is a term that might be a little bit difficult to understand at first. What does it mean to be a protocol across blockchains to represent digital assets, which is how Bitmark defines itself. So Sean will help us understand that a little bit during the course of the episode. And one thing we should say is that um, Sean is a great advocate of uh, open source open source protocols and open source practices. And you can really feel um, the generosity in his way of speaking about these topics. Uh, he definitely has a great passion for them. Sean has this really interesting way of explaining blockchains to people who are maybe a little tired of constantly hearing that the blockchain is a decentralized ledger, a term that really mostly comes from the world of accounting and that doesn't really connect with this idea of a technology that could be revolutionary for the future. And uh, talking about the future, it's worth mentioning that Sean writes this really interesting blog on Medium, and we'll share the link in the show notes, where he writes his letters to investors, which are essentially his vision of the future for the different products that he helps develop. And the last thing we should say about Sean is that he co-developed with Casey Reese the online marketplace slash exhibition space feral file feralfile.com which has been a really inspiring place to find nfts that are presented in a way that are much more contextual meaning that every time uh, a new set of nfts is presented on the platform it is in the context of an exhibition that typically has a curator has a context put around all the works maybe a theme And in general, it helps understand why these works exist, what was the intention behind making them. And they don't just feel like speculative assets, they feel like works that have a connection to a practice. And I was personally very happy to have collected one of my first NFTs on Feral 5. So it was definitely a great pleasure to have this conversation with Sean and to try to dig into an understanding of the blockchain, the concepts around the blockchain, breaking away from the typical metaphors and the usual hype speak that we hear in all the literature trying to sell us onto the decentralized future and to really get an understanding of it that helps us relate and puts it in a greater context. So I hope you enjoy this episode and thank you very much for listening. Sean, it's really great to have you with us. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to meet and, um, and to talk about blockchains. Uh, since this is our first episode of the Terms of Service podcast, and we want to start from the bottom up. So blockchains are really the basis of all the stuff that we're living on right now in the, in the Web3 world. Um, but you have a really sort of interesting uh, path to where you are now. So maybe we could just start with you uh, introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you got to uh to what you're doing today oh yeah sure so it's a little bit of a history um so first uh uh my name is sean moss Poltz. so i started um bitmark this current company i'm working on now in 2014 and the journey to get there actually goes back a couple of more years so this is like pre blockchain 
uh, even as a word. So I remember uh, in the original white paper from Satoshi that laid out this vision of a decentralized like peer-to-peer money, the words blockchain never appeared together. There was blocks and then there was chains. But it was only like, I think it was 2015, maybe 16, before the media just started calling it blockchain. Actually, Satoshi called it time chain, which might even be a better word. It might, it might even be a better way of describing it because that's what it's doing. It's time stamping transactions into uh, chains. So they they can't be um, unlinked or, or, or linked in different ways than what they were supposed to be linked in. So, okay, I, just back up for a moment. Um, I uh, got quite obsessed with Bitcoin. This was 2011, 2012, and was quite convinced that this idea of a decentralized money was the future, that it would make just a better society. So I wanted to get involved, but I'm not really a money guy. I've never been excited about finance. I've always been excited about making product. And something happened. So I got married. Uh, My wife got pregnant. And I was talking with my dad, who's an estate planner. So he builds trusts for people. And he said, well, okay, now you're going to be a dad. You need a trust. And he said, well, what would you like to put in your trust? And he's thinking, I'm going to say, well, a home, um, stocks, you know, things like that. And I said, well, I'd like to put my books, my music, my Bitcoin. And he's like, what? Your what coin? <laughs> I said, my Bitcoin. So this ended up being this really interesting journey that came to the conclusion that this idea of property rights, which came from land, so people could own land, and it was extended to knowledge, so patents and trademarks and copyrights, never really got extended to digital things. So when you buy an ebook, for example, you don't own it, you have a license to use it. Uh, same thing with music. And Bitcoin was like, well, what is Bitcoin? It's this really strange thing that you actually do in some ways own but you have no ways of proving that you own it in the sense that could fit into the property systems the way that society has um, worked out over hundreds of years. Like land ownership goes back to the 12th century. So it's these are really, really old concepts. And I was like, okay, that's it. That's what we can work on. We can work on building digital property rights or a decentralized property system for the world. Like that would be a cool thing to do. It sort of fit together. Like if, if Bitcoin was peanut butter, then a property system would be the jelly and you could make a cool sandwich if you had these two together. So that's the origin story of, of Bitmark. And then um, the first person I brought on as an advisor was Casey Reese, a good friend of mine, who's an artist, uh, artist, professor, technologist. I mean, he's many things, but um, I brought him on specifically because I felt that people would be interested in owning digital art. And little did I know, nobody cared about digital art. So this was like 2000, I guess, 14, 15. And people thought of it still as just screensavers and this weird thing, extremely marginalized. And so we ended up doing a lot of things um, related to health data, the ownership of health data, uh, the ownership of music songs, the, the 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 rights, the copyrights behind songs. So we, we were working on, I don't know, four or five different verticals, different industries to try to figure out what would get people excited about a, a decentralized property system. Art was always a hobby project for us. And I think the reason that 
um, you're talking to me today is because art, digital art is no longer seen as a hobby. It's seen as something very serious. People are quite excited about it. So that's, that's where um, Bitmark arrives at today is that all of these other things we were working on, those are either stopped or canceled or pending. And we're, we're all in on this idea of, okay, what are the, the rights and the tools that we can create such that um, the whole art ecosystem can become more sustainable and better for the artists is really the specific way of looking at it because they've been historically excluded from the upside in their work. And these are all issues of ownership, issues of provenance. And we feel that that this set of technologies, the set of blockchain technologies um, of which like NFT, Web3, cryptocurrencies, all of this are included, that, that this is the opportunity to show that you can create radically better ecosystems. Um, and art just happens to be the first one. And it's it's great because, I mean, of course, art is just beautiful. It's, it's, it's such an amazing... Um, such an amazing thing that humans create. And it's great that this is what seems to be bringing this set of technologies to a much larger audience. Yeah, well, actually, we, um, I think we, we discovered Bitmark through Feral File, which is the name of, yeah. the, of the marketplace that, that is, I guess, running on Bitmark. Um, would that be a right way to say it? Originally. So now Feral File is purely multi-chain. Um, we, so Bitmark started by making our own blockchain only because our first prototypes were built on Bitcoin and the Bitcoin people just did not want you to stick um, anything other than uh, money transactions into their ledger. There was this real sort of resistance in the community and we felt that it just would not be sustainable to build a property system on top of Bitcoin. So we built our own blockchain, but that was never the intention. The intention was always just to run a property system and um now, now, as in like, let's say two months ago, we feel that the base layer blockchains, so Ethereum and Tezos specifically, are very strong. Um, the communities are vibrant. Um, both of these blockchains have um, really interesting consensus mechanisms. We can get into it later uh, in the podcast. Um, and we felt that, yeah, there's no reason for us to continue maintaining our own blockchain. Um, we should be users of these blockchains and building on top of them as opposed to just reinventing the wheel again and again. So that, that kind of brings me to the next question, which is that I, I was seeing on, um, on your website that um, you basically talk about Bitmark as a protocol. Um, what exactly does that mean? And, and, you know, again, and since this is a podcast that's really destined to non-technical users, how would you explain yeah. that to people who don't necessarily understand what a protocol is exactly? Yeah. Um, can I answer the, the what is a blockchain question first? Because yes. I think also this is where the, the real misunderstandings start. Um, and then everything else on it is like trying to build a, a house on top of sand. Like if you don't get this foundation right, um, you, you have to sink really deep pillars into this sand before you can create a solid foundation. So We'll start with blockchain, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, go ahead and, and, and sort of tackle that question whichever way you feel appropriate. I think, you know, one of the things that um, we know people hear a lot whenever their blockchains are mentioned is everybody always says it's a decentralized ledger, which is a little bit seems like basically a database of transactions. Um, yeah. 
maybe if you could uh, if you could sort of explain it in a broader way or, or using different terms that can help give it more, of course, of course. more color. Yeah. And I'd like to put an entirely different metaphor in your head than a ledger. Okay. So start with this idea of a virtual computer. So maybe even think of like a physical computer, one you have on your desk. And then a virtual computer would be a, a software-based computer. So, so a blockchain, the way to think about this is as a virtual computer that's in the cloud, that's shared. Okay. So uh, if you think of the history of computing, the first computers were always shared because they were so expensive. Um, mainframe computers, these things, they had uh, time sharing. They had all of these programs that allowed many people to use the same computer. Okay. So blockchain, virtual computer, it's in the cloud, it's shared. Okay. So, that, so that's, that's the basic foundation. Now, the interesting parts are that it uses cryptography and we'll get into that in a moment. And it has a consensus uh, technology that allows for people to share it, um, but also keep it safe to keep it secure. Okay. So, so let's put aside protocols. Let's put aside ledgers, all that stuff for quite some time, even smart contracts put aside that for quite some time. You just want to think of a blockchain as a computer that's in the cloud that's shared. And the way to think about Bitcoin is it's a partial blockchain. And what I mean by this is that it's a computer more like a pocket calculator is a computer than a general purpose computer like the desktop, like the PC is. So if you think of like a pocket calculator, um, when I grew up, this will date me, but uh, I had an HP 48 uh, pocket calculator. It, it uses this thing called reverse Polish notation. And so you could program it, um, but it was very limited on what you could program. Now, so Bitcoin, same thing. It's a partial computer. And Ethereum was the first uh, let's call it a full blockchain. So, so a full blockchain computer in that you could run any kind of program on it. So computers, um, they can, uh, talk to applications. Um, people write applications that run on computers and typically you would, you would talk about, okay, what are some of the communication uh, applications that would be run and these get into protocols. And so these are kind of right now we're, we're speaking English. There's a certain uh, grammar construction of English and you could think of that as the protocol, right? Um, uh, the operating system would, would be like our brains or we're, you know, we're trying to construct sentences and then we're going to speak these in a language that hopefully we understand. Right. And some of us are native speakers, some of us are not, but we're all speaking this English protocol. So, so if we start first from this idea of really what is a blockchain and this, this amazing new notion of a shared computer that's virtual, that's in the cloud, that's protected by cryptography and a consensus technology, a new set of consensus technologies. And so by consensus, I just mean, um, how do we agree upon what the heck is happening with this computer? Okay. So maybe a, a pause there and you can, and, and you can ask more questions and, and we'll come at it from, from many different angles. I think when you understand this as a computer, um, once we look at NFTs or cryptocurrencies or IPFS or any of these other words that you've heard of, we can, we can relate it into this notion of a computer and how people would um, both develop 
applications and services for this computer and also just use the computer. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a metaphor that I've heard used when people will say that like, uh, Ethereum is like the world computer or something like that. Yep. Um, but, uh, but what I, you know, sort of, if we want to push that metaphor a little bit further or poke holes in it, yeah. let's say, yeah. um, uh, in a sense, if you think of a computer, you imagine that it has, uh, sort of a, a, a processing unit and some memory yep. And, yep. and inputs and outputs. Um, whereas the way that I think at least the sort of preliminary understanding of a blockchain that, that I would have, and I think that people who just think of it as this decentralized ledger is that all it does is that it writes these blocks, right? So it receives mm -hmm. requests to write a block to check that the block is acceptable. And that's where the consensus comes into play. Then it creates that block and then it keeps adding other blocks. So it seems like it's a computer that has an extremely limited capability. And we also okay. know, I mean, this is obviously something we can talk about more, but it has very limited storage also. So does it feel like if you're going to make a metaphor of a computer that it's like a very weak computer or, or would that be accurate? I probably misused the word metaphor because it actually <laughs> is a computer. So I, I, I want to really uh, come at this a, a multiple times um, because the, the, the way to think about it is the way a computer works. And let's take the ledger for a moment. You could think of the ledger as the hard drive. Okay. And so just like a hard drive is writing data in sectors, right? So there, there is blocks actually uh, in a hard drive, the way that it stores information. Um, you should think of the ledger. So you should think of this, this computer that's in the cloud as also having hard drive, also having CPU. And so um, the way the CPU works is really just um, the CPUs on individual computers. Okay. Now, how does the um, hard drive get updated? So how does that, that, um, that ledger that we're talking about, how does new information get written into that? Well, it has um, this uh, consensus technology that would uh, decide how that works, who gets to write, if you will, into that storage place. Okay. Now, um, this computer, because it's virtual, because it's in the cloud, it's slower. So if you had a computer on your desk, you could run programs faster than if you had a computer, let's say you're using Amazon, like AWS, because um, you have to communicate to it. It takes a while to communicate to it. Now, um, this computer is uh, difficult to communicate because instead of using usernames and passwords, so you don't really log into it with a username or a password, you actually log into it with cryptography. So you have to create uh, keys and we can go deep into these keys, but just think of the keys as the access control system. So who gets to write, who gets to read this computer? Um, you need keys, right? The keys takes the place of the access control system. Okay. And then, um, well, it's a computer, so you'd like it to do stuff. So you have programs. Okay. And these programs are what, people call smart contracts, right? um, the whole naming of this stuff totally sucks, right? So you have wallets, right? Wallets are where you store keys. Like, it's like, what? Like, why are the keys in your wallet? Like actually the keychain. It, it should be called a keychain. So you have keys in the wallet and then you have um, uh, these NFTs or cryptocurrencies and 
well, actually cryptocurrencies and NFTs are just data. And so you say, well, where's the data? Well, the data of course is, is in the ledger. It's in this virtual computer. Um, it's not in the wallet. So like you say, here's, you know, I, I show you my wallet that has my NFTs in it. Like this is the worst way of understanding what's going on. Because, because So it's like there's layers and layers and layers of broken metaphors. Like this is definitely named by engineers. It was not named by, <laughs> by people with real empathy. Um, so, so we have this computer and this computer is running programs, which we happen to call smart contracts. Okay. And the computer is storing data and the data that it's storing, we happen to call tokens. So we call them fungible tokens, non-fungible tokens, cryptocurrencies, NFTs. And um, the way that you uh, have rights to use the computer or to make changes to the computer's memory configuration is with cryptography, with public-private keys. <laughs> okay. All right. I think the name is, is that is that is that getting somewhere? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you know, the naming okay. thing is really interesting. I think because um, you know, when you think about uh, computers, the way the ones that we yeah. use, um, I mean, just I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but historically, all the sort of user experience of a computer was designed by people who were developing these tools for Xerox. I think uh, yeah. at, at Park, uh, doing research on on creating user interfaces. And they were inspired by all the office stuff because they were working yeah. in a corporation. So yeah. we ended up with a desktop and with folders and with files. But it's not yeah. inconceivable that the computer experience could have been quite different if it had been designed by artists or by, I don't know, uh, architects rather than people who were mostly concerned about, let's say, corporate clients. But, but I think it's, it is really important to, um, to call out the naming conventions, because as you said, if, if the engineers are the ones who are calling things a certain way, and then people complain that they have a hard time understanding how Web3 works, there's probably a correlation between those two things. Um, yeah, and just to carry that slightly further, linger on that for a moment, the first, this first blockchain, um, this partial blockchain, Bitcoin, actually was a financial application. I mean, Satoshi, every intention from everything that you've read in he, she, they, in the writings was that this was a direct response to the financial crisis. And it really was, I mean, the paper was called electronic cash, peer-to-peer electronic cash, right? It wasn't called uh, a computer. It wasn't called a general purpose uh, computer for secure computations in a decentralized way. It was really specific, hey, let's see if we can create a better money. Now, even though you're still using keys to communicate with this computer, it's not so wrong to call it a wallet because like, yeah, like that's where your money is. Most people's money isn't a wallet, right? And, and it was really electronic cash. It wasn't um, a bank account, a savings account. It wasn't uh, a derivative, a bond. It wasn't a financial instrument that that was more comp- complicated than just exchanging cash. And so you do keep cash in a wallet. And so in many ways, the original naming of Bitcoin was kind of fun. I mean, it's it's sort of disarming. Like I know my first experience with Bitcoin was a re- a, like an outright rejection of it. I was like, Bitcoin, like what a stupid name. Like that's, that's nerd money. That's never going to work. 
right? And it wasn't until I actually dove deep and source looked at source codes, tried to understand, re- read some of the writings, really understood what was going on before this idea of, well, this is a new type of computer that we've never seen before. And a lot of people actually don't have um, a computer that they can share with other people that is secure. So, I mean, this is sort of no laughing matter, but GitHub kicked a lot of developers off because they happen to be from a country that right now the U.S. doesn't like, right? And this happens again and again. You you see this all over the world where where we create these technologies that people use to transact with, and then we impose some set of political beliefs on these technologies and, well, weaponize them, right? And weaponize them for for political agendas. And sometimes we could say these political agendas are aligned with our values and other times we can say, no, they're not, right? And so this idea of a computer that the world can share that can be secure, that a third party can't go in there and tamper with it. Well, that's that's actually fascinating. That's an entirely new paradigm of computing. And when I understood that, I was like, okay, I've got to get involved with this. Like that's that's the future that I've always wanted. I mean, that's in some ways, that's what you were promised with the internet was that this was a new global communication network that allowed two parties, two peers anywhere in the world to exchange information. I mean, that that was a beautiful idea. Um, we don't quite have that right now. And a lot of those, um, a lot of the reason that we don't have that right now comes down to this, this idea that we weren't able to transact things of value uh, without relying upon third parties. And those third parties become um, security holes. They become uh, censorship regimes. They become uh, surveillance systems. They become all of these things, which we've seen again and again happen in the real world. And it just accelerates in the digital world. But so maybe just to sort of loop one more time on your on your computer metaphor um, mm-hmm. before moving on. I think computer explanation. Yeah, explanation, not a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah. Um, it really is a computer. Like yeah. I, I really hope yeah. that's like the one takeaway is that this is a new computer. It's like yeah. we went from mainframe mainframes to mini computers to PCs to mobile phones. And now we're at this like shared computer with the world. And that's right. what a blockchain is. So okay. so so if we assume that we yep. we usually assume also that computers are sort of general purpose machines. Of course, they can't like make milk, but they can do yep. all kinds of stuff with data and with you know inputs and outputs. Let's say, but would it be fair to say that a blockchain has a very limited set of abilities? Meaning that it's since it was designed from the get go to be a tool for financial exchanges. Is that yeah. what it is limited to for its foreseeable future? Or are there other things that we don't know about that a blockchain could do that would you know, be about more than just sort of transactions? My guess is that's exactly what Vitalik thought when he looked at Bitcoin. So he looked at Bitcoin, saw a partial blockchain computer, 
and said, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if we could make this into a full blockchain computer? This idea of a full computer is known as Turing complete. So a computer that's Turing complete is a computer that can simulate any program. So this idea of universality, it's really a deep concept in computability theory. And so what what this jump from Bitcoin to Ethereum did was to create a universal computer that could literally run any program that any computer could run, but using this blockchain um, as the basis. So that that's what was so interesting about um, that jump from Bitcoin to Ethereum. So Ethereum was, okay, well, let's add back in those instructions. So Satoshi actually released a lot more instructions. It wasn't a full blockchain computer, um, but there was a lot more instructions in the first release of Bitcoin. And then it was walked back because there were some security flaws. There were some vulnerabilities that were found. Um, I remember there was a release at one point where Satoshi said, hey, please update this quickly. And then a couple of days later, he, she, they said, yeah, um, there was a bug and you could basically spend anybody's Bitcoin. There was no protection there. Okay. And so, so these, um, all software has bugs. And so there was a real, a real good argument to be made that the first blockchain computer, well, let's just reduce this instruction set. Let's keep it super, super, uh, conservative because all we want to do is make a money. Like that was really the only goal. Let's make electronic cash. And then Vitalik was a brilliant engineer, looked at that and was like, let's, let's turn this to 11. Like let's make this into a Turing complete computer and let's keep this same consensus technology. Let's keep the same cryptography based way of allowing people to use it. Um, but let's just increase the instruction set to the point where it's Turing complete. So that, that was Ethereum. Um, every other, every other blockchain to date. So whether this is Solana or Tezos, or uh, of course, even Bitmark, like you name it, any, any blockchain that's ever been created since that point in time, uh, is, is equivalent. That's, that's the Turing completeness idea, this really weird thing is that they're all the same and they're just making different trade-offs. So they're making different trade-offs um, for, for speed. So Ethereum, for example, really values this notion of decentralization. So it's slower than, for example, a blockchain that says, ah, decentralization doesn't matter that much. If we have just 20 people that can run this computer, it, so if we if we divide the computer up over 20 people, that's good enough. Like that's already better than just one person like Amazon or Google or Microsoft. That's 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 better. Like if you have 20 people. Whereas like the bar for Ethereum or the bar for Bitcoin is no no tens of thousands of people have to be able to uh, participate in running this computer. It's not, it's not okay if it's just 10 people or five people or 20 people. And so myself, I fall, um, in a bit more of the kind of the purest camp in that decentralization needs to be a real objective. Like it's an engineering, uh, like in your, in your requirements, engineering, it's, it's let's, let's move towards more and more decentralization as a desirable feature. So you want not 
tens or hundreds, but you want thousands and tens of thousands of people um, to be able to participate such that this computer runs, it, it should not be 10 people. I mean, we, we've, we've sort of, uh, you could say that, that the financial system has run uh, on 15 central bankers for the past, whatever, 50 years. Like we already have a computer that's running the financial system that there's 15 people and that's it. Right. So that's, so it's not really interesting if you say, Hey, we made a new computer and 15 people get to run it and that's it. Um, what's fascinating is, Hey, we have a new computer. Anybody that wants to can run it and it can really actually be anybody that wants to that that's mind boggling when, when you wrap your head around what's going on here. Yeah. And, um, so just sort of to, to clarify maybe some nomenclature because people, often talk about um, the EVM, which is a term that sort mm -hmm. of gets thrown around a lot, which uh, unpacks to the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, yeah. The way that I understand a virtual machine is that I currently am recording this podcast on a PC, Windows 10. Um, if I wanted to run another type of operating system like Linux or a Mac, um, I would basically create a virtual machine that could run on top of my existing hardware. So. Is that what you mean by computer? Because to me, that's more like an operating system, but maybe that's just a nomenclature for nerds. I don't know. What, would you say there's a difference between those two? That's great. So I, I, I didn't want to call it a VM um, or a virtual machine right away because I feel that um, it's more clear if you just say it's a, it's a, it's a virtual computer. Okay. Um, now, uh, it is a virtual machine. And so... Um, the machine, so so the VM in the machine they're talking about is actually a computer, a Turing complete computer. So it is emulating the entire instruction set of the processor. So if you are um, creating a VM uh, on your computer, what you're doing is you're actually um, virtualizing that hardware. So the instruction set, the, the most common instruction set for PCs is called x86. It was created by Intel. Um, there are other instruction sets for computers. Um, ARM, uh, for example, has an instruction set that people use. Most of the mobile processors use the ARM uh, set of instructions. And these are just, okay, what the processor can do. It's the implementation, if you will, of a uh, of the state machine that you need for, for Turing completeness. Okay. So, so you have this virtual machine, so it's a virtual hard hardware. It's a virtual computer. Okay. And by virtual, it just means that it it's using software to emulate the computer. And then you need an operating system. So what the operating system is doing, like the job of an operating system is to manage the resources so these resources are storage, memory, um, compute. So it's it's managing those resources and managing them for whom? Well, for programs that want to use them, right? So users run programs, programs need resources. The operating system is what delegates and manages those resources, okay? So those resources can be real, I, I guess is what you would say. It. Like, so it can be real hardware? or it could be virtual as there's no difference really. It's just the virtual one is slower. That's, that's all. And, um, and that's the and reason, that's, sorry, that's just, it's slow because yeah. it's distributed because 
the reason. No, no, just slow because it's it's it has this like it's it's sharing those resources. So so what a VM is doing is it's saying, okay, um, I'm gonna have let's say five different operating systems running on the same hardware, but I've virtualized that hardware such that for each operating system, it thinks it has a unique set of hardware. So let, let, let's go way, 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 way back to time sharing. So uh, 1950s, 1960s, we had these big powerful computers and we didn't have very many use cases of them. They were mainly military. And we wanted a lot of people to use these computers, but the computers were millions of dollars. So how did we do it? We basically divided the time that a human could use the computer into these segments. Okay. And because the computer was so fast, it appeared that I was using it, you were using it, and there was no there was no perceived difference because the computer would just switch between me and you so fast. So it would allocate resources for me, allocate for you so fast that there would be no problem. Um, so we have we have this this notion of time sharing, and um, that's really what the operating system is doing. Okay? Now, something happened in 10, 15 years ago, and that was that the the CPUs, so the processors, so the hardware, got so fast and so powerful that the average program. So the average use case of somebody that just wants to like check email, browse the internet, crunch some numbers in a spreadsheet, like the computers got so fast that it was like, this is nuts. We don't even need this much power. And so um, what, the, what the people started realizing was that, okay, well, let's use hardware and let's virtualize this hardware. So one computer could actually run multiple operating systems at the same time and multiple operating systems running different sets of computer programs. So applications, services, protocols, et cetera. And let's run these all at different times with different users, with different access control systems, with different everything, but it was actually running on the same set of hardware, okay? So when that hardware would fail, all the operating systems would fail at the same time. All of the programs would fail at the same time. So like the way data centers were built out was all on VMs. So there's lots and lots of computers. They're all running VMs. Maybe a single computer might be able to run 20, 100, 1,000 VMs, depending upon what your application loading was. Each VM from the perspective of the application was a full operating system being able to offer full hardware resources. Okay. And so you're like the, the reason I'm kind of explaining this in such nuance is that you'll arrive at a state where most of the computation for the world was running in virtual computers that were running on just a few computers that were controlled in just a few data centers that were owned by just a few companies. And so you have this massive centrality happening because of the fact that only a few people owned data centers that ran computers that were extremely virtualized on these operating system levels. And so if you could insert yourself into that, that VM level, well, you could monitor everything going on with those computers. So that, that's what Edward Snowden showed that the NSA, for example, was doing. 
they were basically just having this huge straw that they were sticking into Google's server farms and just like drinking their milkshake. <laughs> like we'll suck up all of your information. How could they possibly do that? Well, because everything was virtualized on not that many computers running from not that many data centers. And what was the response of the engineers to that? It was horrified. And then what did they do? They're like, okay, we're going to encrypt everything that runs across the data centers. So what does that mean? It means that everything from the VM that's managing the resources down to the the real operating system, I shouldn't say real, so the main operating system controlling the hardware resources, that would be encrypted. Well, what is that? That's that's very similar to what Vitalik was like. Well, let's just make a computer that's encrypted from day one. Now, the problem with, with the way that Google engineers and, and the Microsoft and Apple engineers deal with the encryption is, okay, well, who does the encryption? Well, of course it's them, they do the encryption. So who has the keys? Well, of course it's them, they have the keys. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that somebody could subpoena those keys, they could lose the keys, they could have the keys stolen, right? And so you've, you've gained something by using cryptography because now you have more privacy, you have more security. But if one party controls the keys, then you're still in this same situation where all you have to do is compromise one party. One party does something wrong, not even like malicious. They could just make a mistake. Then there's catastrophic consequences to every end user that is running those programs that are running on these computers and virtualized to these virtual means. So to use your same terminology here, you could think of a blockchain as a virtual machine. Okay. Um, that is shared with anybody that wants to. And this virtual machine, the way you access it is with cryptography. So it's, again, using cryptography to access it. And the way that the, um, that the, the resources are updated, so the way that information is, is written, um, the way that information is stored is protected with consensus technology. So we, we can get into consensus uh, technology in a bit, um, but maybe I'll stop there because there's, there's a whole bunch of things to unpack there more if you're interested. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just going back to the previous question, um, because I think we've gone, we've understood the computer aspect and the virtual machine aspect. I think that's, that's really clear. Um, however, I think what's still unclear is let's say that I wanted to use Ethereum for something completely different than writing blocks in a decentralized ledger. Could I do that? Or is that the only thing that that virtual machine is capable of? Cool. So the first use cases of these blockchains were money. Okay. And I think that kind of makes sense. I mean, money is a technology. Uh, people get pretty excited about making money. <laughs> so it does make sense. Okay, so now uh, what happened? And so th th this is really um, the feral file perspective here. And so this this is Casey and I, we talked through this many, many times. And the way that we see what happened with digital art, um, generative art, crypto art, all of this stuff was that you had a lot of people that uh, because of the pandemic were, and then this is, 
Casey, I, I, I know this for sure. So his schools, his classes were all shut down. So of course his students um, weren't going to school for some time, but his ex-students who were already having careers in the arts, um, the galleries were shut down, the museums were shut down, all of the events where they would go speak at were shut down. Uh, even the restaurants, maybe if they weren't so successful yet as an artist, their studio wasn't so big, they would wait tables, they would bartend, that was all shut down. And so these artists, uh, like all artists do, got online and started experimenting with some of these new technologies. And I think what happened was that um, well, first, so there was two forces coming. So one was artists experimenting with some of these new technologies. The other was that Bitcoin, Ethereum uh, as a currency, as a money. So, so this application of money that was running on these blockchains all of a sudden went way up in value. So you saw all of this wealth that was created um, in a very, very short period of time. And what are you going to do with this wealth? It's really hard, actually, to get cryptocurrencies out into the real world. It's extremely regulated, these, these off-ramps. It's very, it's very difficult, very complicated to get Bitcoin or ETH um, into your bank account. It's a pain in the butt. And so artists made some stuff and people that had crypto bought some stuff. And now... We'll go into how the artists made this stuff in a moment, but artists were really some of the first users of these blockchain computers. And it's really cool. Like if you think about it for a moment, okay, the financial people, people wanting to create money, people wanting to create uh, different types of coins, you know, everything from Bitcoin to some plethora of these tokens and there's Dogecoin. thousands and thousands of these tokens bitcoin everything from bitcoin to bitcoin so these are created um uh on on blockchains and that was the primary application up until the artists and i'm i'm papering over crypto kitties and some other really cool use cases that are sort of art but on the on the border between art design collectibles whatever you want to call it um, but the artists were the first ones that I think of that were just like, no, no, we can make art with this stuff. And so um, what was specifically uniquely interesting about the idea of, hey, we can create art with this stuff was the idea that we could we could create a record that would represent both the ownership and the artwork itself and we could do this and then we could exchange th this piece of data. So the record is, was a piece of data um, with another piece of data, which happened to be, let's say, Bitcoin or ETH or whatever. Right. You could exchange these pieces of data so you could write a computer program that would run on a blockchain that would exchange these pieces of data. So you would make a piece of data that said, hey, this is my artwork. And um, here's who I am. I would sign this thing. And you would say, okay, well, anybody that wants to uh, have um, this artwork, well, so this piece of data, so go ahead and exchange it with me for another piece of data, which we call uh, an ERC-20 token, or we call it ETH, right? ETH is the kind of the base 
currency. It's a commodity really, but ETH is the commodity that people exchange to, um, uh, to use resources on this computer because artists needed ETH to be able to make, make these, these things we called NFTs. Um, and so they would exchange their artwork for these commodities that would allow them to make more NFTs. So the, 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 the use case that you're describing is still running on top of the fundamental architecture of transactions. And I think it's running on this computer. It's running so it's a, it's a computer program, right? Yeah. But, but, the, but the computer program essentially does really just one thing because regardless of if it's like you mentioned that they're tokens, but if I am putting a token uh, on the market that I want to exchange, yep. and maybe it's a fungible token, it's still the same logic as saying I'm putting a piece of art and I'm because the token that is represented in the NFT, it, you can you could sell it or buy it regardless of where the actual art lives, right? The art, actual art is, is detached somehow. It's linked to the token, but it's not in the token. And so I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get to is just we're still in a uh, and, and this is this is not a critique. It's more just to really yeah. put the, the, the our, our finger clearly on the on the matter is is that we're still dealing with a, a machine that is designed to run exchanges in the shape of transactions. Um, and I guess mm. uh, okay. is, is that yeah. I want to I want to pop up one level from this because. Yeah, I have to clarify a couple of concepts that are um, that are similar to these wallets storing keys. Okay, so first these tokens. Like, what is a token? Okay, so 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 what is a um, what is a token? And then we have this really weird thing where we say a non fungible token. Like, what the hell is that? Right. So let's go for tokens first. Now, I just want you to think of token as a data. So think about it like a file on your computer. That's fine, right? It's it's a piece of data, okay? Now, I want you to think first and foremost about um, an application, okay? So uh, we have Photoshop. Let's pick, I, okay. Let me not use Photoshop. I'm so pissed at Adobe for buying Figma. So let's, <laughs> let's not use that, right? So <laughs> what's a program that I still love? <laughs> Processing, how about there that? Processing is a great... <laughs> It's a great program. <laughs> okay, so we have a program that's fiercely independent, made by people that care about the long run. <laughs> okay, so we have processing, and um, we have uh, some code that represents our artwork. Okay, and um, we'd like um, we'd like to use this processing application. Okay, so we have a program that's using that, and this 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 application can can make new programs um it can it can write data to disk if we want to so it can output other things um you could output uh lots of artwork um the way a lot of people use processing is they actually export things so they can export to plotters they can export to printers they can export to svgs you can export to all, all sorts of things so so if you think of those exports um if they're digital, just think of those exports as tokens. Okay. Okay. Now, um, these tokens, uh, these are files. These are pieces of data. Now, where do they live? Well, of course, in the computer. 
Okay. Meaning that they're stored on the hard drive of that computer. Okay. Now um, you could ask a question, well, can I move them between computers? And let me not go there yet. Like the answer is you can, what does that mean? It'll make your head explode. But so, so let's just speak in terms of one computer. There's no USB drives. There's no ways of getting things between different computers. Okay. But, but just like if you created, if you use processing to create a PDF file, you could then go take that PDF file and open it in uh, the evil Adobe's uh, PDF viewer. You could do that. Okay. So, so these are um, data that could be opened in other applications that run on the same computer. Okay. So uh, this data, so, so Satoshi said, okay, well, let's, let's, let's make a program that based on a set of rules will create only 21 million files. That, that's it. It's just going to create 21 million PDF files. When it's done, it's done. That's it. Okay. And you can, uh, you can swap these PDF files if you want to. Okay. And there's a user interface for that. Okay. So it's a very simple program. You can swap PDF files. There's only 21 million of them. That's it. That's, that's, that's what it does. Okay. And there's some rules to verify that, okay, who can swap under what conditions can you swap? Um, what happens if you try to take uh, something that's not really a PDF file, it's a fake PDF file, and you want to swap it? Like, let's say we want to do that. How do we protect against that? So there's all kinds of rules that that play into that. But at the end of the day, it's just 21 million of these things that we're swapping around. Okay? Now, instead of files, they use the word tokens. Okay? Again, the, the, the naming sucks across everything. Okay? Now... Um, people wanted to standardize these tokens. So, so when you have this computer that can create your own tokens, one interesting idea would be, okay, well, how do we standardize these things? Now, again, why would you want to standardize them? For the same reason you want a PDF. So, so you can standardize the way that, that, that the output of a page is so you could print it and you make sure that when you print it, it's the same, right? That's the idea behind a PDF. Same thing with a token, right? It's like, if you want to make a certain token and you want any wallet or any application or any service to know how to use this thing, well, you'd like a standard. So people have created different standards for these tokens. Now, people created kind of categories of tokens. They have some tokens that are interchangeable. So in the Bitcoin space, you have these 21 million PDF files, not PDF files, of course, right? But so, so, so 21 million PDF files all created from this processing application that we're using that we love. And each of these are interchangeable. They're what people call fungible, meaning that they are, they have no provenance. There's, they're, they're indistinguishable. You don't care. They're like, they're like electrons, if you know about electrons in, in, in atoms and physics models. Electrons are fungible, okay? Um, so, but an artist does not think of their work as fungible. Like, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like every 
you know, uh, Rafik artwork is the same. Like they're all unique. They're all different. They're all beautiful. They're all original. And so you would want something that represented that at the very, very um, data level, the file level. So you would want some standard that would allow um, different people that want to trade those things or exchange those things or even use those things. Um, you'd want a way to uh, to label that or to standardize around it to be uh, to being unique to having a provenance. So so that's that's what we call this NFT. It's a way to identify um, unique data such that the application knows it's unique and the application will go look for the history of it. And the application will go look for, well, who created this? Where was it created? When was it created? All of this information matters. Whereas if it's a fungible thing, like let's say you have a hundred dollar bill, you don't care when it was made. You don't care what mint minted it. You don't care who had it before you. None of this stuff matters. All you care is that it's a hundred dollar bill and that's authentic. That's all that matters. Um, so there, there's a there's a standard, if you will, for that. Right? The the U.S. government has a standard for the dollars. Right? People go try to make those dollars, and they're going to get punished for that. the The system will try to reject that. Same thing with uh, with um, uh, the blockchain computers. People have created standards so that you could make more of these uh, tokens and people would know how to change them and people would know how to authenticate them. People would know how to, um, I don't know, render maybe is the right way of saying it. Like you need to know how to render a PDF. There's, there's, a, there's, there's, there's a set of standards that anybody could use to go implement a PDF viewer. So, so, so think of the NFTs that way. And so, so now I, I wanna just um, go a little bit now high level for a moment. So, so what is an artist doing when they're minting? So they are first coming up with a program and this program, so that let's say they're, they're first opening up processing and they're creating a new artwork and then they're hitting the export button. Um, and they're saying, yeah, I'd like to export it as an SVG. Okay. And so think of the, the process of minting an NFT as you have some program and this program, you're going to deploy your program on your computer. This computer is this virtual computer called a blockchain. You're going to deploy this program. It's standardized. Okay. So everybody knows how to use your program because literally they're going to use your program. They're going to open up your artwork or they're going to verify that your artwork was created from you under a certain set of conditions by running the program. So interacting with the smart contract. Okay. And, and then that program also has rules for how you would exchange that, how you would swap that, how you maybe would update that, how you would read that, like what, what information should you read in there? What we call metadata. So just data about data. This is um, what you would normally expect to see uh, in the provenance of an artwork. So who had it last? What information, like how was it stored, for example? Was it in this museum? Did they keep it under these kind of conditions? Was it kept in a warehouse that was kept at a certain temperature scale? Like just all of this information you'd think of as um, things that could add value to the artwork. And the artist probably would want to um, group this stuff together so that whenever you 
um, exchanged the ownership of that artwork. So the digital representation of that object. So the, um, the file, the PDF, right. In this processing metaphor, um, it, it would travel with it. It, it would travel along with it. You know, just like nowadays, um, uh, I was looking for um, what's the name of this restaurant that I went to that had this cauliflower that was incredible. It was in Tel Aviv. And I just looked at my photo that I took of that. And then the photo has the XM um, uh, information. You can see the, the lat longitude. So you could look it up in Google Maps, right? This is metadata that organizes information about the photo. So you can, so it's just a richer experience. This is what the NFT is doing. It's just a standard method of organizing the information around the artwork, but it's the artwork that matters. Like the NFT is just like, like the lat longitude. That's it's the collection of information about the data. So people know how to interact with it. That's all. Okay. There's a lot of information. Sorry. No, but that's yeah. great. I mean, I think we're really, I like how we're kind of moving really in the sort of terms that, that we've all gotten accustomed to because we all use computers all the time. So understanding how our computer works is probably easier and, and being able to apply those concepts to the blockchain, which feels more mysterious, but it seems like yeah. the way you're describing it, it's much clearer. So if we've, if we've gone through all these layers of sort of the, the virtual, the computer, the virtual machine, uh, the software, can we go back to what the product, what a protocol is and yeah. why Bitmark specifically is a protocol? Yeah, sure, sure. So we're getting to what people would call like the software kind of hardware stack. So at the base layer, we have the the computer. So that, that could be the virtual machine. Okay. Now, um, you asked, what is an EVM? So the E stands for Ethereum, the V stands for virtual, the M stands for machine. So this is just, it's a set of instructions that Ethereum uh, standardized. Now it's become sort of like an open standard. So a number of different blockchains run the EVM. Okay. Now I've tried to like hand wave over, can you talk between computers? So. We won't go there unless we really, really have to. Um, so we're up to the level of the EVM. Okay? Or let me just use VM. I, I don't want to um, focus in on Ethereum too tightly because these concepts are universal. So we're at the virtual machine level. And then we've gone up to the program level, which we call smart contracts. And then we've gone up to the storage level. So writing data which we call tokens, okay? Now, once we're at that level, okay, now we can talk about the programs, so the smart contracts and the data, the tokens, and we can talk about how these work together and what you can do. So can programs talk to other programs? Yes, of course. Can data um, be exchanged in different programs? Yes, of course. Now, um, what if many applications want to be exchanging the same set of data? How do you create standards for the applications to know how to do that? And the way that computers typically do this is with protocols. So you've probably heard of TCP IP. So what is TCP IP? 
well, it's just this idea that we would like to send packets of information. So what is that? Well, packets of data. We'd like different programs to be able to process this data, to know what to do stuff with that data. And so we're going to develop a protocol that can be implemented, of course, implemented in a program, right? <laughs> so we're going to make a program that implements a method of being able to exchange information between other programs. That's a protocol. Okay. Now, oftentimes protocols are trying to exchange information between computers. And that's the idea behind TCP IP would be that you could have many, many different computers around the world trying to exchange information and you need a way to do that. So, so that's what, that's what the protocol is, the protocol. So, so why did we consider Bitmark, for example, a protocol? And the reason is that we considered what we were trying to build as a property system. And if you think of like copyright, for example, so, so, so if you think of copyright, you create some work of art and you would like to um, have some set of rules that go along with that thing of how you use that you need a place to register those rules. And the place that you register those rules uh, in the US is the, it's called the Patent Trademark Office, right? And so that Patent Trademark Office is what's known as a registry. And they're just gonna keep those records safe. That's all they do. It's very expensive. Um, if you want to file a patent, you have to file it. It's quite expensive. If you file it in one country, you probably have to file it in 26 different countries. So you, you kind of, there, there's many different ways of looking at this problem of, gee whiz, it would be pretty cool if we had a global registry that anybody in the world could use. Because you'd be like, hey, I'd like to register my copyright. Do you want to register it in the US? Well, you guys are in Europe. Like, why are you going to register in the US? Well, because you're going to have some people somewhere that might want to use it in the U.S. So now you got to register in the U.S. You got to register it in Europe. What about China? Again, then right away, it's just this massive, massive headache of securing records of anything in a global world. And um, you could say, okay, well, let's just run it on lots of different computers. So let, let's, let's secure these in many different computers. Well, whose computers? Apple's computers, Google's computers, Microsoft's computers. Well, these are all U.S. companies, <laughs> right? So like you, you basically can pick, okay, do you want to use the China internet or do you want to use the American internet? That's your choice, okay? Um, one has massive amounts of surveillance being controlled by a few companies. And uh, yeah, I guess so does the other one. <laughs> like that's all you get, right? You have to pick between the two, right? And 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 so... So, so, so this idea of a computer that's shared by the world that anybody can access, and there's just one of these computers, that's actually really compelling if you think about it. Like if, if you step back, you're like, that is pretty radical. That will make your head explode. So we go back to this copyright idea, registering a copyright, storing it in a registry, okay? Storing it in the registry. So the registry is like using lawyers and audit firms and accountants and all of these people to keep those records secure. It's really expensive. 
Okay. Instead, we just say, oh, well, let's just use computer science. Like <laughs> computer science can secure value better than lawyers and accountants can. Right. And it uses this, this notion of Moore's law, which would be that you're computing. So the amount of computing resources you get access to roughly every 18 months gets, gets doubled. Right. Or you could say the other way, the cost of that, that amount of computing resources falls in half every 18 months. So if you think about people storing value in the real world, uh, the patent trademark office, you have uh, people that are securing that value and well, they, they get more expensive. Like we want better health insurance. We want, you know, better pensions. We want all of these things. So the cost of securing value by humans is going up each year. Whereas the cost of securing value by computers is going down each year. So there's this really rational argument to, even though it feels a bit wasteful having so many people, helping to secure this stuff across the entire world, um, chomping away at verifying these things, this thing we call proof of work or whatever. Um, it's actually significantly cheaper than having a whole bunch of lawyers, a whole bunch of accountants doing that work in the US and then duplicating the same work in Europe and then duplicating the same work in China and then duplicating it all over the world and then trying to come up with some protocols like there's this thing called the PCT, which if you want to register patents in different places, you have to actually register them with the PCT and then you can register with 20 different countries. So these are all protocols that would allow you to, to you know, distribute your the thing that you created to many, many, many different registries around the world. So you have all these crazy problems that that if you had one computer running all the programs, you could radically simplify Okay, that, but the people, yeah. the, the the people that, and I want to bring it back to the humans using these computers. The people that are using them in the most interesting ways right now are the artists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and it's not just the fact that they're using them as like these these records. So you own my NFT. It's that some of them are saying, "Hey, the code that creates the artwork." that is what you're getting is also stored directly in the computer and it's actually in the smart contract. So the program that plays back, um, just like processing has uh, those sample, uh, sample files, sample examples. Um, so like the processing programming environment allows you to actually run stuff. So people put code into the smart contract that would allow them to run and play the artwork. That's kind of cool. That's what people call on-chain code. So like, what does that mean? Like on-chain art just means that, that the code that renders the artwork is actually in the program itself. That's all. Yeah, that could be like, uh, like generative art, or it could also be like the nouns project where every day a new mm, NFT yeah. is created based on a set of parameters. But mm -hmm. I think this, this kind of also brings up a question about, um, about storage because people always talk about how blockchains are bad at storage. And I, I was listening to Vitalik talk about what he calls the purge, which is a future step in the development of Ethereum when they're going to start culling data out of yeah. Ethereum and they're only going to store it in some places. But, it, but, but anybody who runs the full virtual machine, let's say, or node, 
um, will not be storing necessarily the entire amount of data that's always been stored on Ethereum. So I guess maybe just sort of a high level question about that without getting too technical about what that means is, is it by design that blockchains have to be bad at storage or is there a future where we could imagine that blockchains actually have no problem with storage and that all the NFTs could be stored or the actual artwork, not the token, but the artwork could be stored on the blockchain or other things um, because it seems like that would be a much more ideal scenario for, you know, securing provenance around, around artwork. I want to give you a really simple answer first. So the simple answer is that storage won't be a problem. We will figure it out, but it will take a long time to get there. It's, it's actually quite difficult from an engineering perspective to solve this issue of how do you store a lot of stuff with this computer? Now, let's let's ground ourselves first in this idea that it's a virtual computer. So it's a virtual machine, okay? And um, if you remember, I spoke about the virtual machine initially from the perspective of these data, uh, data warehouses, so data centers, and you have real computers. Okay? And what the virtual machine is doing is it's virtualizing the real hardware so that the operating system could not have to worry about the hardware. Um, and you could have many, many, many operating systems running on the same hardware. Okay. So... Now we have to go a little bit into consensus technology. So I never told you what hardware a blockchain computer is running on, right? So we have this virtual machine, it's in the cloud. Okay, now well, what is it actually anchored on? Where is this resources? How is it computing? So it's running computer programs. Where are these computers running on, right? Like they're virtual computers, but what hardware does it actually run on? And the answer here is that well, it's running on my computer. It's running on your computer. It's running on anybody's computer that wants to participate in these new type of uh, computers. And so, so, so I have a computer. I have a PC, and um, I have the ability to run um, a computer program that will uh, allow me to to give my resources to be under the control of this virtual machine that is running Ethereum or running Bitcoin. So what does that actually mean? So what that actually means is that any program that this, that this new really cool blockchain computer is running could be run on my hardware on my desk, right? Or in my data center. So now the question becomes, so, so go, go back to the NSA uh, tunneling into Google's hardware and sticking their straw and sucking all the information out of Google's hardware. How do we prevent that from happening if we're gonna let everybody in the world that wants to share their computer like their, their, their hardware with this new virtual computer? How do you prevent that? Okay. And this is a fascinating set of problems. Like how would you do that? The first kind of way at approaching this might be, okay, well, let's just like randomly pick somebody 
and say, oh, okay, um, you know, Casey, today's your time. Like you get to go secure, like you get to provide your, your power today or like Alex, okay, tomorrow is your time. Okay. Well, how would you do that? Who gets to pick that? You're like, oh, wait a second. We're making a decentralized system here. So how do you do that? So it's a really, really complicated problem as to uh, how do you pick who's, who's hardware? Because um, uh, of course you can't use everybody's hardware at the same time. Like that's, that's like an impossible, uh, it, I'm, I'm glossing over like a number of things, but there's this idea of parallel computing where you want to run your program on many, many, many processors at the same time. It's extremely difficult engineering problem. Um, you hit up against limits incredibly fast. So, so the, the, the best way would be if you could just have one hardware <laughs> that gets to run the program. And once the program is done, everybody agrees that, yeah, that's right. That worked okay. So this is what consensus technology is actually doing. The consensus technology is selecting, using some algorithm, who, like which hardware computer is it actually going to be run on this time? And um, it's a set of rules for picking that. And then it, it's a set of rules for once that gets picked once that computer program is run and the output of that program, what's what people call the state. So, so computers transition between states. So there's, um, uh, let me not go too deep into that, but there's these transitions of state. And what you want to do is record these transitions of state. That's what your, your computer is doing. It's, it's running some instructions, which create a new state. And then the next set of instructions can use that previous state to do something else. Okay. So the consensus technology is picking some computer somewhere in the world, some, some hardware somewhere in the world to execute some instructions that update the state. So create a new state and then record that state in memory. So well, what memory? Well, what, what, what we call this ledger. Now, how does the ledger work? Well, it's distributed, right? Meaning that after that state gets recorded, after people agree that, hey, this is the state, then you have to propagate to every other physical computer, hardware computer, you have to propagate that information because they're all going to need it if they get chosen to run the next set of instructions, okay? So the first way that people made these blockchain computers was that everybody has to store the state at all times, okay? So if you participate in this, this new blockchain computer, sorry, you're gonna have a massive amount of information you have to store. And after every single state transition, after every single straight transition, you're going to have to synchronize. So get that information so that your computer is, is ready to run the next set of instructions. Okay. So these, these uh, state transitions are what are stored in the blocks. 
Okay. And these blocks have to propagate across the entire network. Everybody has to get the blocks. Okay. Now, um, the way that you, well, one possible way of solving this problem is that, well, why does everybody have to get these blocks? Why can't certain people get these blocks? Like, could we come up with an algorithm where we would send, um, like, if you think of like driving down streets, like you have your car, you're driving down the street. I don't know if this is the same in, in the rest of the world, but in America, you have like even numbers are on uh, the right side, odd numbers are on the left side. And so, so like you have, it's kind of more simple. Like if you're driving down the street, you know, okay, my friend, John, he's on uh, his address ends in a even number. So I'm only looking for homes on the right side of the street. So one way of doing this would be, you would say, okay, well, we're going to give everybody that has even numbers, um, these blocks and everybody with odd numbers, those blocks. And so you could, you could kind of cut these up. You could shard them as it's called so that different places, you could do it based on regions. You can do it based on IP addresses. You could do it based on, of course, public keys, right? Cause so there's many ways you could do this. Um, but it's a really difficult, uh, information problem to solve. The simple way of doing it is just have everybody have all the information. Um, and so that, that's what Bitcoin did. So Bitcoin was like, okay, everybody is going to store the ledger at all times, meaning like everybody is going to have all the information on their hard drive. So if you want to participate, so if your computer is going to run these programs, run these operating systems, you have to have all of the information at all times to be able to do it accurately. Right. So that, does that, does that help? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so, so the problem is not so much a, let's say a fundamental design issue of the virtual machine. It's more about the way that the virtual machine has to be distributed and, and bandwidth problems and storage problems on, on each piece of hardware that's running the, the machine itself. Um, so theoretically, if if you could find, as you mentioned, these ways of maybe distributing the load a little bit, so not everybody has to carry the entire weight of the whole chain, we could yeah. start adding more weight to it, let's say, or more data to it, and not uh, make it just unwieldy to uh, to store all over the yeah. place. Yeah, yeah, and and the reason I talked about this as a consensus technology is that you need a decentralized consensus mechanism. It's not okay if you have one central party that says, okay, Alex, this is your time. You go yeah. do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it needs to be decentralized and it needs to be, so it has to be cryptographic. So the only, um, the only way that we know how to share information so that everybody can 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 see the information can can pass the information along the only way we know how to do that is and and keep it safe keep it secure because if you can tamper with it then yeah it's <laughs> what good is your computer if you can have the NSA go in there and change it right and suck the data out of it right like it's like it's not a computer anymore it's a it's a surveillance apparatus right so um or or i mean to kind of poke more fun at the analogy um, what good is your computer if the Fed can go in there and just increase the number of zeros you have on your bank account, 
right? Like that's also not a very good computer. If we're trying to secure the world's money and we agree that, okay, there's this much money. And then all of a sudden we get one country that happens to think this thing called Q, QE, like quantitative easing is a cool thing. And so we just flood everybody with a bunch of zeros and then the Euro goes down, right? In relationship to the dollar, right? So, you, you know, so you have all of these, these things where it's like, we don't want people to arbitrarily be able to tamper with the information in the computer. We want a computer that is <laughs> that the information stays consistent. Like this, this is called uh, data integrity. You want integrity of your data. Like if your hard drive didn't have integrity, and you know one day you come in and your information is gone or it's changed, you'd be like, "This is a pretty shitty computer, right?" So you want extreme integrity in this data. But there's, I so, think there's, there's, there's something that that brings up in a sense, okay. which is kind of what we just went through. So the merge happened last week on Ethereum, which is a sort of a big update to the operating system, I guess. It just starts functioning. The consensus mechanism changed um, from proof of work to proof of stake, which yep. we don't necessarily need to get into. But I think what this brings up to me is that it's almost like we have a machine that can't update itself so easily. And, and another example that comes to mind is, for example, um, Ethereum, ETH, the currency, is not a currency that was developed on the token standard that a lot of more contemporary currencies use. So I think it's the ERC-20 standard, um, which means that Ethereum cannot be as easily exchanged as other cryptocurrencies. And, and, and the reason why this kind of is a question for me is that you know, we are used to software and machines updating all the time, right? Like the, whether we like it or not, it's actually much harder to keep your phone or your computer in a state of, I don't know, 1998 or 2010 than it is to constantly let it update itself because everything is constantly in the state of flux. So the applications update, the OS updates, the you know, iPhone has a new... Uh, version of iOS and, and then, you know, pretty soon your apps won't run on it and blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I guess there is also something that seems to be in the design of blockchains is that they're not really supposed to evolve that much, right? They're supposed to be more static or at least for longer periods. Does that sound right? Or. Yeah. Um, let me build this up again in a couple of layers. Okay. And like we have enough information at this point to really uh, precisely talk about the consensus technology now. And this will get us into proof of work, proof of stake. And we can talk about it actually incredibly quickly. So it's this idea of whose computer does this next set, like does this next state transition, whose computer does this get to run on? Now, Satoshi's way of doing this, which was kind of fascinating, was to say that, well, let's just have everybody compete to solve an extremely asymmetric puzzle. So if you have, have you played Sudoku before? Do you know this Sudoku game? Yeah, a little bit. My kids play it. Okay. Okay, cool. So, so you know, like to solve, let's say a 10 by 10 Sudoku would take you some time. Right. Like if you're if, if, if your kids were like, hey, dad, go solve this, this 100. Let's, let's make it more extreme. 100 by 100 Sudoku puzzle. You'd be like, it's a lot of work. 
But if your kid brought you back the solution to a 100 by 100 Sudoku puzzle, you could look at it. Well, maybe not 100 by 100, but like, let's say 10 by 10, you could look at it and like almost instantly be like, yep, that's right. So this is known as asymmetric. It extremely difficult to get a solution, but once you have a solution, it's extremely easy to know if it was correct or not. Okay. So Satoshi said, well, let's have everybody run a extremely asymmetric uh, computation. And whoever solves the computation first, they get to make that, like they're the ones that get to do the state transition. Okay. You could ask, well, why the hell would anybody want to do that state transition? Like, why would you want to spend all of your energy solving that Sudoku puzzle? Um, probably that you're going to get a reward. Like probably you're going to get something for doing that. And so um, uh, in the creek, in both of these blockchains that I've talked about today, so Bitcoin, Ethereum, well, your reward is uh, the cryptocurrency, the, the base layer currency. So if you, um, uh, if you get to do that, you know, if you solve that puzzle first, then okay, you, you get that reward. Now, this puzzle is asymmetric. So you have to do a lot of computation. And so you have to do work. You have to really actually work hard to solve that puzzle. It's not, it's not an easy thing, right? And so this, this idea of proof of work is that, okay, you've proven. So your kid did the Sudoku puzzle, the 10 by 10 Sudoku puzzle, brought it back to you. And uh, if you have two kids, you say, okay, whoever brings it back first gets a reward, okay? And you know right away, like, did they cheat? Because they can't cheat because you can really quickly verify the answer. There's a, there, there's a way to do something that has all of the flavor of what I just explained using cryptography across a distributed network so that you could pick who gets to make, who, whose computer gets to be the definitive computer for that state transition of which after that state transition happens, everybody else is going to accept that as the state transition and then um, go solve the next Sudoku puzzles on top of that. Okay. So that's, that's the way proof of work functions. Now, uh, again, these are the things when, when an engineer or a business person first looks at that proof of work, they would look at it the same way that you mentioned with the storage thing. Like, why the hell does everybody have to store all the information on their computers? Doesn't that, shouldn't we divide this up and do this differently? And there's no simple solution to doing this. Okay. So Satoshi just came up with this brilliant idea of proof of work. Like the, the simple solution as how do you, in a decentralized manner, get to decide who has that state transition? Who gets to run that state transition? There's no simple way of doing this. Proof of work is a fascinating solution to this. It's secure. Uh, yes, it is wasteful. Um, but again, go back to this idea of like running the US Patent Trademark Office is pretty damn wasteful, right? You have a lot of bankers, a lot of accountants, a lot of lawyers. Um, and this is a cost structure that gets cheaper over time, not more expensive over time. We're using computer science as opposed to accountants, as opposed to lawyers. So it is cheaper over time. It's a much, 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 much better solution than the way people do it now. Okay? Um, 
Ethereum and really a lot of people wanted to know, is there another consensus technology that we could do this with? And so proof of stake is, is another way of doing this. And instead of having to run a computation, what you're trying to do is to say, look, hey, just put a whole bunch of money up. Okay. So, so lock a whole bunch of money into somewhere. So like, again, go back to your kids, right? You have two kids. Uh, I hope you have two kids, Alex, but let's say you have two kids. Okay. And okay. 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 And you say like, and then your kids say that this is the right answer. And you're like, are you sure? Would you bet on it? Okay. Would you bet me 200 bucks on this thing? Okay. And then let's say that later on you could find out that they lied. Okay. Well, if, if they lied, what would you do? Well, you would just like take their money. You would slash their money. So the proof of stake that the Ethereum community has come up with is this idea of, okay, well, let's just stake money. And if we later find out that the computer that did the state transition cheated, we'll just slash their money. Okay. Now you'd say, okay, well, what about the Bitcoin case? What about the proof of work case? What if they cheated? Well, if they cheated, they lost all the work because they, they, they ran this computation. Like their, their computer was running for a period of time using a tremendous amount of energy. Really, the only thing that's, that's like conserved in the universe is energy. If you studied physics, you'd realize that energy is conserved. It's expensive. It's like money, right? And so you would say, okay, well, we're just, we're just going to burn a whole, like we're just going to use a whole bunch of energy to cheat? Like that doesn't make any sense. Just like if, if somebody puts a whole bunch of money up and then they go cheat and then, and then other people can catch that they cheated easily, you'd be like, you're a moron. Like, why would you do that? Like, why would you put this money up if we know you cheated, right? And now uh, it turns out that, that doing it with money as opposed to doing it with energy is extremely complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because, well, what money are you going to use? Well, you're going to use the money that was created by the computer, right? So you have this like <laughs> this um, recursive problem. Well, how is the money created by the computer? Well, the money is created by the computer that the person that's doing the state transition is securing. So it's like, wait a second here. So, so the, the, the energy is much easier to solve for because the energy is external. The energy is not in the computer. The energy is outside the computer. Just like it would be a heck of a lot easier if you could secure the computer if the money was US dollars as opposed to ETH, okay? Um, if you want ETH to secure ETH, you have this really, really hard problem. Now, um, Vitalik believes they've solved it. Or actually, I shouldn't say Vitalik, it's quite decentralized. So the Ethereum community believes they've solved this. Not sure yet. We'll find out. It's still early. It hasn't been tested the same way that the proof of work has been tested. Right? Now, so that's that's the consensus technology. Um, the There was um, two other questions here um, that kind of tie back into ETH and ERC-20 and what's going on there. And should ETH be ERC-20? Um, should it not be? Um, really like, what does it mean to be ERC-20? Uh, all it means is that that particular piece of data stored in some state transition somewhere uh, has a standard that people know about. Now, I mean, ETH is the commodity of this computer, 
that controls access to the access to the resources. So to me, I would be like, well, you don't need a, like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make any sense to have it be standardized because it is the standard. It is the standard. If you would like to use this commodity in your program, go use it. It's, it's, of course you can use it in your program. So, so um, some people have developed things they call like wrapped ETH. Um, it makes it slightly easier to use in different currencies, but any program that runs uh, in a blockchain computer can always use the base layer technology. I mean, that's, 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 that's the whole point of it. It's like, it's like any program, like, could you use your monitor? Yes, of course you could use your monitor. Like, or, or could you use your, you know, your, 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 uh, mouse? Yes, of course you could use your mouse. Right. Um, it's a base layer resource of the operating system. Yeah, but I guess Bitcoin same way. I guess that in that in that sense, what what, what I think I, I understand you're saying is that um, is that for 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 an an, ev an evolution to happen within the computer, the entire there has to be a, a consensus as well, right? It, because in a sense, like I, if I'm if I have a, a Windows PC, I don't yeah. have a choice on when Windows updates. Microsoft decides they send me an update, I can turn it off. Oh, hold on one second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, 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 there's two things going on here. So, um, so, so just so we don't confuse the, the state transitions. Yeah. So the, um, the information being stored in the computer. Yeah. So th this is after each set of instructions get run. Yeah. Things will change to the memory state of the computer. Okay. And then we have an operating system and the operating system's job, again, remember the operating system's job is to allocate resources um, for the apps and services. So, so we can talk about, okay, well, let's update the operating system. Okay. And we, and also can we update the applications? Yes, of course you can, but updating the operating system is more tricky because every application depends on it. So, so how tricky it is to update the operating system really depends on, okay, well, how sure are you that this update to the operating system is not going to negatively affect some application that's running on somebody's computer? So um, that's a really, really difficult thing to get right. It takes a long time. Um, Microsoft notoriously suffered from uh, having bugs in their operating system that was exploitable. Okay. Now, um, Ethereum, Bitcoin, they also potentially suffer from bugs at the, what, what I was calling base layer, but we could just call operating system layer. So at that, at that virtual machine layer, um, if you have a bug in there, it's a big problem. And so you want to update it slowly. So how do you update it? What, what is an update? Basically, everybody that's participating, so everybody that's providing hardware resources to this blockchain computer has to run new code. It would be like um, everybody, so like Microsoft or, or Apple, when they release update, I can update it if I want to or not. It doesn't really matter. Right? But what if everybody had to update their iPhones or everybody had to update their Android phones? Otherwise, you get knocked out of consensus. Right? You're no longer part of the consensus process. That literally is what happens if you're running a version um, uh, during a certain change, like what happened right now with this merge. 
if you had an old computer or if, if you had computer running old software, you would be knocked out of consensus. You can't, you can't, you can't run it. Um, how aggressive you are with updates is also uh, in many ways like a philosophical decision. So Bitcoin is incredibly conservative with updates. It's very, very rare for updates to happen to the Bitcoin virtual computer. Um, and Bitcoin also tries as hard as possible to make sure that if you're running old versions of the software, so like you're running Windows 95, you can still uh, participate uh, with Windows 10 programs, right? Like they try really, really hard to be like backwards compatible. Ethereum is like, no, no, we're just going to break stuff. We're just going to make everybody in the network have to upgrade, right? So these are different flavors of operating systems. It's not, it's it's not reasonable to say one is right and one is wrong. It's just these yeah. are different, different philosophical ways of um, developing software that people use. Yeah, it just requires uh, every the entire user base to follow the rhythm of updates, which is obviously asking a lot from people. That's the consensus are, technology. Yeah, yeah. yeah, is that they all have to run the same code, yeah. so that the state transitions are the same. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess. I think we're kind of coming to an end to all these questions. We could talk for hours about this stuff, obviously, yeah. but um, I think that now that we've, I feel like we've really gotten a good grasp of of these layers and sort of how we can really use this computer metaphor as not even a metaphor, but almost like a one-to-one. It's a new computer. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, like it really is. Like, I hope people take away that this is a new computer yeah. and you should learn how to use it. Exactly. Because it's going to be the most powerful, most important computer that humans have ever created. So that's my last question for you is yeah. if you were to if you were to um, think about how people are talking about the blockchain today, you know, yeah. um, we talk a lot about uh, that. There's like, you know, a new generation of creatives that can make money and that there's decentralization. And a lot of these buzzwords are thrown around but they don't yeah. necessarily, I think, resonate with uh, a person who's sort of not deep into this stuff. And what I'd like to know is if you were to explain to um, a non-technical or non-crypto invested, let's say green-pilled person, why blockchains are inevitably going to become such an important part of our future, what would you say? Yeah, I would look to history. So one of my heroes is, um, uh, is okay. So, um, during the, during the beginning, beginning days of computers. So this was forties, fifties, sixties, that kind of period. Um, uh, there was, um, a movement, um, to, to create a human. So what they called man machine interface, but it was a human interface. So um, uh, Licklider created this team that that approached this from a from a human a humanist perspective. Now, before Licklider, all of the efforts around um, interacting with these computers were like punch cards. You would have to give the computer exactly what it wanted, and it would give you back something in the format that it wanted, you would have to go figure this out. So there wasn't this idea of like, no, 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 no. These should augment humans. These should make things better for humans. Uh, the human is in control, not, not, not the computer. 
And so this whole paradigm, um, you mentioned Park and and uh, um, Xerox and what was happening there with the uh, with the window interface. And, um, and of course, that's what Steve Jobs saw that felt that this is a whole new paradigm. And this is, this will revolutionize the way people use machines. So this, this transition from being something for calculating ballistics for weapons to being something that humans could use as an act of creative expression came about because the, the human interface to this technology changed. Okay. And each time that that interface changed, or each time the base layer technology itself changed, you would have a revolution. So um, the internet, for example, you could say uh, the web, um, these were changes in both the base layer and the interface of this technology. So the human machine interface, both sides change. Um, it's rare for them to change at the same time. Um, usually they're changing at different times. And so in the case of the blockchain computer, the base layer changed. The computer itself changed. The ability to have a shared computer that's secure, that anybody in the world anywhere could access, that changed. That never existed before. And people laugh at it. They're like, this is the slowest computer. This is so expensive. This is like boiling the oceans. Like, what the hell are you guys doing? Right. And, and again, go back to, okay, this computer is being used to compute ballistics to go blow up somebody in a foreign country. Like, what the hell are you doing? How could this possibly be good for civilization? Okay. And, and this is what happens, right? Because the user interface and and so the the human the way the human uses the technology and what the technology can do they get decoupled for periods of time so somebody somehow invented a new computer and in the very very beginning i said that satoshi didn't even call it blockchain right that wasn't even a word in the white paper it was two words spread across multiple paragraphs right so oftentimes the inventor of the technology doesn't even really actually understand what it's going to be used for. So Vitalik pushed it and said, well, let's just make this turning complete and see what happens. It's like, hey, let's turn it all to 11. And what can we do? Right. And, and, and so this, this technology is still so early. But what it is, is the evolution of the way humans compute. Now, the user interfaces to this stuff suck. So the user interface is the wallet. That's really the user interface to the to the blockchain computer. It's the wallet, okay? And so first you have to figure out, well, what is a wallet? Why do I have these tokens in it? What the heck are these private keys? Why do I have to worry about these seeds? So you have just like metaphor upon metaphor that is busted, that is not actually what everyday people would be able to quickly wrap their heads around. And you could be like, oh my God, this is stupid. It's never going to work. Let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. Or you could say that, look, we don't have somebody like a lick lighter that has come in, that has approached this from the humanist perspective, that has approached it from the perspective of, wow, what if we had a computer that people all over the world could run a program that all over the world people could trust that the output of the program was correct? It wasn't tampered with. 
Nobody, no foreign government could get in there and suck all your information. No corporation could revoke your privileges to be able to access that thing. No institution could say, sorry, I don't think your work is legitimate, so I'm not going to show it in my gallery, in my museum. Like, what if you had that kind of computing environment? Well, that's that's fascinating. I mean, that goes back to, to processing. If Adobe went and said, hey, I want to go buy processing, right? And you'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? You, you, you're going to buy an open source project. Like, yeah, go buy it. Or like, my favorite analogy is like Goldman Sachs buying Bitcoin, right? Or like Facebook buying Ethereum. Like, first off, like, what does that even mean? Like, what would you buy? Would you buy the cryptocurrency? Great. The more Bitcoin that, that Goldman Sachs buys, the higher it goes up. Could Goldman Sachs go buy the code that, that, that is Bitcoin? No, it's open source. You just fork it and you'd be like, yeah, fork you, Goldman. Like I'm running my own Bitcoin now, right? And so it doesn't, like you just have this incredibly different power dynamic. These, these power asymmetries that we've only recently been able to even understand how dangerous these power asymmetries are for democracy, for our financial systems, for our markets, for our culture. Now, because of these new type of computers, we have a chance to take a step back and be like, yeah, let's, let's make some different institutions. Maybe we don't want to have 15 men in suits selecting how the monetary system of the world works. Maybe we don't want to have some patent regime that was put in place in the 17th century to address 16th century problems. Maybe we would like to have a different way of talking about artist collector rights. And these are all things that now we finally have a computer capable of being programmed that could address these things. Now, we don't have the right human interface to this computer. That, that's obvious. Right? Anybody that's ever tried to, to buy an NFT, to make an NFT, to exchange a cryptocurrency, like you'd be like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is whack. This sucks. <laughs> but, but if instead you said like, okay, well, what is this actually doing? Like, I remember the first time I, 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 I sent Bitcoin to a friend, I was in Taiwan and it was like, a, I think it was 11 o'clock at night and I sent Bitcoin to a friend that was going to go run in a race. He wanted me to donate to him. And I said, look, I have no way of getting you money there. I'm going to have to, like, you want a hundred bucks. If I send a hundred bucks from Taiwan to you in New York, the amount of money you'll get in your bank is like $40. The banks on both sides would eat up most of it. The interchange fees in the middle would eat up the rest. You'd get like basically 40% of whatever I sent you. That's all you're going to get. I'm like, can I give you Bitcoin? He's like, uh, okay. So I sent him Bitcoin. Okay. It took six seconds before he saw the transaction in his wallet. And then that was it. And we did this at 10 o'clock at 11 o'clock at night. I think it was probably a Saturday, something like that. I mean, go try to do that with your bank. Okay. Go try to buy uh, an NFT when you're in Argentina, try to buy the NFT with a credit card. See what happens. It'll get blocked. It won't go through, right? What if you want to buy from an artist that's in Argentina or in Iran or in Russia, right? Why should we punish the people in these countries because their government sucks, right? 
the reason we do that is because they're the ones that have set the rules on how we can transact. Why shouldn't individual people be able to come up with their own rules? Communities, why shouldn't communities be able to come up with their own rules of how they transact? And then it's opt-in. You choose. Would you like to transact under these set of rules or not? There's no gun to your head saying you have to use Bitcoin, you have to use ETH, you have to use Bitcoin. It's like, it's completely opt-in. I think that's incredible. And I think we're just at the, the earliest, earliest stages of what this new computing revolution can do. And what we need more than anything right now is actually people that understand the human side of that. How should humans around the world interact with each other using this new computer? If there was any kind of like call to action here, it would be, come on, guys, if you're a designer, if you're involved with UI, or if you're a psychologist, or if you're anybody that that is really deeply curious about how people should organize, how people could organize, this is the greatest time on earth right now. So ignore the ICOs, ignore the, the scams and what's going on, and see for what this actually is. It's it's a revolution in computing, which can give birth can give birth to a revolution in how people organize and how they how they communicate, how they how they how they transact with one another. Well, that's a great conclusion. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for for being so clear and uh really helping put this in uh very understandable terms. My pleasure. I mean I've been I've been all in like all of my my working time, uh, whenever I talk with friends, I'm always talking about this stuff for going on 10 years. And I still learn new things every day. Like there's, I still feel I don't fully understand what this computer is capable of. How does it work? What's going on? What needs to happen next? So if you come into this space and it's confusing, you just have to give it time. There's a whole bunch of layers upon layers of ideas that are some new, some not, but there's genuinely something novel happening. And I don't think anyone fully understands just how novel this is. Even the people, of course, that have been in it since the beginning. At, at some point, there'll be the equivalent of iOS. I remember, so I have two kids. Um, my oldest, I wanted to teach him computing the way that I learned computing, which was, well, you program a computer, you learn how to program a computer. And yet his first experience with a computer was at school. I, I did not want to give him a computer so early, um, but the schools were giving people iPads and an iPad, you can't program. Well, I mean, you can, but Apple says what you can program. You can't actually access the bare resources. Everything is sandboxed. And I was really conflicted about this. I was like, this is a difficult situation. If the next generation of people think of these computers, not as general purpose programming environments, but instead apps that you use. So there will be a stage where people will just use blockchains the same way that you just use your iPhone. If we don't get the artists coming in and programming these things, so if we don't get the equivalent of processing, 
these sorts of tools, you know, processing Arduino, I mean, heck, Linux itself, right? Like if we don't get people to understand that these are general purpose, this is a new general purpose computing environment that can do anything. And instead, we just let the apples of the world shoehorn their business models, like shoehorn blockchain into their business models. We're screwed. Uh, this this whole, you know, you can't put new wine into old wineskins, like this whole metaphor. It's like we have a new, we have new wine. We mm. need new wineskins. Like, so so we need to, to, to make sure that there is this period where the artists, the developers, the creative people um, explore the edges of what this blockchain, what this computer is capable of. Otherwise, the Apples, the Googles, they'll just slam this into their business model. Because that's what always happens. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sean. Really uh, appreciate your your time and your enthusiasm and your clarity. Uh, I think if you don't do it already, you should do some teaching because you're seemingly <laughs> very good at it. <laughs> no, I don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, though. All thank right. you.